as the Apostle Paul warned the churches of the ancient city of Ephesus. This is Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, so that you'll be able to resist on the evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. This is a theme in the scriptures. The rebellion against God in which humans participate is not simply a human affair. There are spiritual rebels as well, and throughout human history these rebels have presented themselves to humanity as gods, and they have invited human worship. In certain seasons of history, they've made themselves plainly known. In other seasons, they have obscured their true identities, revealing themselves only as ideas or ideologies or inspirational spirits. But as impersonal as these beings may appear today, the scriptures reveal that they are personal spiritual beings, created by the one true God, and cooperating with fallen humanity in rebellion against him. When God determined to deliver the people of Israel from slavery to the ancient nation of Egypt, God sent ten plagues upon Egypt. God described the final plague to Moses in these same terms in Exodus chapter 12, verse 12. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and fatally strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the human firstborn to animals, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Each of the plagues that God sent against the Egyptians was aimed at members of the Egyptian pantheon of deities. There were hundreds of gods in Egypt, and deities received varied emphases during the diverse time periods of Egyptian history. So in this series, when we discuss specific Egyptian gods that were under assault by Yahweh during the Exodus, we're not suggesting necessarily that a specific Egyptian deity was in God's line of sight, but rather that God was assaulting specific categories of gods. The ancient Egyptians associated their lives, culture, and environment with the rule of spiritual beings in the heavenly realms. And it was against those beings and against faith in them that God was executing judgment. Biblical historians disagree as to the precise dating of the exodus of Israel from Egypt. Contemporary critical scholarship has dated the exodus as occurring around 1290 BC. However, I've embraced 1446 BC as the date of the exodus, as the Bible itself indicates, which places the events of the exodus during Egypt's 18th dynasty, under the rule of either Thutmose III or Amenhotep II. I believe we're in a season in which God is judging both the human leaders and the spiritual leaders of the earth. And just as God was delivering his people from slavery in ancient Egypt by sending ten plagues upon the Egyptians, I believe we are in a period of plagues. In this series, we'll explore and discuss false gods that have arisen in the nations of the West, nations shaped by the philosophical, scientific, and economic systems that have arisen out of the European Renaissance and Enlightenment. In each episode, we will compare and contrast God's assault on the gods of Egypt in the book of Exodus and God's assault on the gods of the West today. May the wood, hay, and stubble be consumed, and only the gold and precious stones preserved. For this first episode, we will discuss 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 through 22. In those verses, the Apostle Paul wrote the following to the Christians of the ancient city of Corinth. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise people. You then judge what I say. Is the cup of blessing which we bless not a sharing in the blood of Christ? 
Is the bread which we break not a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one loaf, we who are many are of one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. Look at the people of Israel. Are those who eat the sacrifices not partners in the altar? What do I mean then? That food sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that these things which which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become partners with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than we, than he, are we? Christians may experience a diversity of liberty in disputable matters, but liberty ends when it comes to the clear teachings of God. For the Apostle Paul, however free we may be in Jesus, followers of Jesus are not free to participate in idolatry. We are not free to partner with the demonic, and we are not free to provoke God. 1 Corinthians 10, 14-15 says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise people. You then judge what I say. What is an idol? An idol is a symbolic representation of anything or anyone we worship. In other words, an idol is anything or anyone we associate with control or power over some aspect of our lives, which we try to appease or cajole, or with which we bargain in order to gain greater personal control. To say it another way, idols are symbolic representations of the realities that we allow to shape our lives and our worship, and to which we pay homage to increase our control of our lives. In Paul's day, idols were made to represent gods which were thought to control various aspects of nature or reality generally. For instance, there was a temple of the Greek god Apollo at Corinth. Apollo was associated with both healing and disease during certain periods of Greek history. There was also a temple to Aphrodite in Corinth. Aphrodite was the Greek goddess of love, beauty, procreation, and and other things. To worship these gods and goddesses in Paul's day, was to worship the beings and the principles beyond the statues and temples. Idols always point to something beyond themselves. Idols, of course, can be less elaborate and more difficult to identify as well. To personify nature as mother nature, for instance, moves toward idolatry. Throwing salt over one's shoulder to ward off bad luck treats luck as a force to be appeased. Even the concept of family can become idolatrous if we come to worship it. However, even these forms of idolatry are low-hanging fruit, so to speak. Paul was a Jewish man, steeped in a culture shaped by the First Testament. And idolatry in the First Testament was a bit more difficult to navigate. In the First Testament, the worship, trust in, or appeasement of any person, thing, idea, or concept other than the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was seen as idolatry. Therefore, Even to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in ways outside of God's revealed will for his people was idolatry. We find the people of Israel falling into these missteps routinely, and it didn't take very long. The first of these incidents occurred within 40 days of the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. The recollection of Israel can be found in Exodus chapter 32, beginning in verse 1. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled around Aaron and said to him, Come. Make us a God who will go before us. For this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. Then he took the gold from their hands and fashioned it with an engraving tool and made it into a cast metal calf. And they said, This is your God, Israel, 
who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So the next day they got up early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and got up to engage in lewd behavior. Because God had said through Paul that idols were nothing, that is, false gods, earlier in his discussion of meat sacrifice to idols, Paul wanted to reaffirm here in 1 Corinthians 10 that however much liberty we have in Christ, Christ has not liberated us to worship idols, false or otherwise. The scriptures do not teach that God is to be worshipped first, and then other things can be tiered beneath him. The scriptures teach that all who would follow Jesus must worship God only. So not God first, God only. This is the essence of what is often called the Shema, which we find in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 7. The Israelites failed in this effort quite early on in the events we just read about in Exodus 32. The Israelites believed that as long as they worshipped the right name, that they were worshipping the right God. However they decided to do it, whether it was with a symbol like the calf, or with dancing, or with revelry, or by whatever means, as long as they had the right name, they thought they had the right God. They were wrong. Continuing in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, now in verse 16. Is the cup of blessing which we bless not a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is the bread which we break not a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. Look at the people of Israel. Are those who eat the sacrifices not partners in the altar? What do I mean then? That food sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become partners with demons. Even though idols are worthless, the worship of idols is still to participate in the demonic for Paul. Now much has been made of demonology throughout human history. Demons remain standard fare in horror fiction and the occult and in Christian culture as well. And I don't want to get into the prehistory of demons. I have some opinions, but all of it in my view is speculative. What I'm comfortable discussing is what the demonic is in Scripture, how it functions. And in Scripture, to quote the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, the demonic are not flesh and blood, but rather rulers, authorities, cosmic powers of this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. These are the forces, both personal and impersonal, that seek to return creation to what it was before God brought order and life to it. I've spoken and written on numerous occasions about the symbolism of the waters throughout the Christian Bible. They represent the original chaos of initial creation. In Hebrew, the tohu vavohu, that God ordered by speaking into the formlessness, and thereby creating space for life, is the chaos. Genesis chapter 1 verses 1 to 2 say, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was a formless and desolate emptiness, and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Because there is only one God, Christians must worship no one or no thing but God. Because to participate in the actual worship of false gods or false powers is to participate with the demonic forces which obscure the knowledge of God and seek to bring creation back into lifelessness, even if Christians can eat meat that someone sacrificed to an idol, Christians cannot actually participate in the celebration of idols. We are not to participate in the celebration or worship or appeasement of those things which undo God's creative purposes. 
continuing in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, now in verse 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? Liberty can be a gift of God in disputable matters. But when liberty becomes an excuse for the celebration of behaviors or principles or systems that God has called evil, then liberty can become provocation. We must not provoke the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The cross has not tamed God. After all that frustration with Israel over sin, God must be so glad he doesn't have to care about it anymore now that he has sacrificed Jesus. Really? In Galatians chapter 6, beginning in verse 7, the Apostle Paul wrote these words, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap destruction from the flesh, but the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. Let's not become discouraged in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not become weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let's do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. But doesn't Jesus allow me to go on sinning with impunity? No. Those who go on sinning with impunity after having professed to follow Jesus have not put true faith in him. They do not trust him. To trust Jesus is to to submit to what God has taught humanity through his inspiration of the Hebrew prophets, through his incarnation in the person of Jesus, and through the apostles that Jesus elected to speak on his behalf. Jesus has set humanity free from the tyrannical powers of sin and death. He did that while we were still sinners. He completed that work, in fact, before any of us here today were born. And yet, not all will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. The true children of God will trust Jesus, and to trust Jesus is to believe what he's taught us about good and evil, about sin and righteousness. Those who trust him cannot continue to rebel against God with impunity. Such rebellion is not a demonstration of faith. We must be careful that we do not add or subtract from what God has revealed to us. Adding to God's revelation, however reasonable to us, diminishes God's revelation. Subtracting from God's revelation, however appealing to us, diminishes God's revelation. Adding or subtracting is a demonstration of a lack of trust. In doing either, we confess either that God has not said enough or that he has said too much. Deuteronomy chapter 4 verses 1 through 2 warned of this long ago. The scripture says, Now Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I am teaching you to perform, so that you will live and go in and take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, so that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I am commanding you. And this warning has been repeated for us in the final book in the New Testament, the book of Revelation which concludes in chapter 22, verses 18 through 21 in the following way. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Do we trust him? Why have so many who have called themselves Christians in the church added and subtracted to his teachings? Why do denominations add and subtract? Why do families and their beliefs add and subtract? Why do individuals add and subtract? Have we faith in God? 
Or is our faith in the false gods of the earth, the gods of common sense, the gods of knowledge and culture and technology? Where is our faith? Throughout this series, we will discuss idols. The gods of the West stand alongside the gods of ancient Egypt. And as God made war against the gods of Egypt to set his people free, so he is now waging war against the gods of the West. Do not participate with idols. Do not celebrate demons. What that looks like is somewhat vague, but through this series of discussions it will become clearer. We must remember continually the Apostle Paul's challenge to recognize that to live in the world we must interact with those who are giving their worship and their faith to gods other than the one God of all creation. How can we remain pure and yet still live in this world? This is not an easy road to discover and many have failed. Many have stumbled. Many are now living in rebellion unaware. My prayer is that this series of discussions will help us to prepare and help us to be good observers as we witness the Lord wage war against the false gods of the West as he once waged war against the false gods of Egypt. Heavenly Father, give us eyes to see that we might bear witness to your work. Amen.